Hey, what's up, Flatirons? And uh, just want to welcome every one of our campuses, West, Denver, Aurora, and Longmont, and then the Lafayette campus, our brothers down at Lyman. You guys know that every single year, we like pool our resources together to get behind a different group of people that need to experience the hope of Jesus and the love of the church during the holidays. You guys remember some of these, like this is single moms who needed cars. Y'all remember that? You know, like our brothers down at Lyman Prison, the people who lost everything in the wildfires, and then uh, a couple of years ago, the next generation. And this year is no different. This year, we're focusing on another part of the next generation. And this specifically, this group of people, this is the kids who are being trafficked. Right now, they are being trafficked, and then kids who are in the foster care system. You see, here's the thing, that the world may ignore or forget about these children. God has not. Neither can we. You see, we'll fight for the forgotten. And you're going to be hearing more and more about this over the next few weeks. But we're partnering with some organizations that specialize in helping save kids from being trafficked. These people who help kids who are on their own find their own family. And we know that if we do our part, that hundreds of kids are going to be pulled out of the trafficking industry. Hundreds of kids are going to find forever families. As long as this church does what it does every single Christmas, it shows up on behalf of the people who need it the most. And so here's what you can do. We're going to be talking about this for the next four weeks, but you can go to flatironschurch.com slash Christmas giving. You can get more information and you can partner with us there, but we're going to tell you more and more about this over the next few weeks. This month, we're starting a series where we're looking at all the different parts of the Christmas story in the Bible, and we're going to look at some of the unexpected moments that happened in the Christmas story, and then some of the gifts that then came out of those moments. And this summer, my family, we got a gift from this church. We got to go on a sabbatical for a few months. You see, a couple of years ago, our elders heard the statistic that 42% of pastors were thinking about leaving ministry for good because they felt burnt out. And the elders said, okay, we've got to figure this out. And so they helped create a sabbatical policy for our staff to rest up. And I tell you, like, I was so grateful for the extra time with family, but I don't know if you can relate to this. I'm a type A person, okay? I really love what I get to do, and I, like, didn't know how I was going to handle not being at work for a few months and just being at home with four kids, okay? Um, but I got to... Spend some time with some great mentors during the summer. I went to a lot of counseling because things up there need some work, okay? And then uh, I got to work on my prayer life, which um, I don't know if I should tell you guys this, but I, I just will. Like my prayer life the last few years has just been on empty. Like I've just been struggling to try to pray. And so I got some time to work on like, hey, how do I pray? Then we set off on this month-long road trip with my family, my wife, my four kids, and typically we'll give the kids some money when we go on a road trip. I don't know what you guys do, but we'll give them money they can spend at a gas station, they can spend it on souvenirs. And this time I had this idea. I was like, okay, rather than just give them a hundred bucks for the trip, whatever the kids earn before the sabbatical, I'm going to match that. Okay. I thought like, this is a pretty good idea. I'm incentivizing hard work. And right before we're hanging with some friends, right before we left, we're hanging with some friends and I'm telling them about my brilliant idea. And they were like, well, how much money have the kids saved up? I didn't know. So I asked my son, Gray, I was like, buddy, how much money do you have saved up? He said, $362. I was like, you serious? <laughs> then my buddy gives Gray an extra 50 bucks just because he knows that I have to match it. I was like, I should have put a cap on this or something. Like, this is not what I expected. And so... 
we set off on this trip. And I just got to tell you guys, like, people in this church were so generous to us. Like, I love that about our church. Besides just being generous toward the church, y'all are generous to each other. You're generous to us on staff. And we got to do so much on this sabbatical because of other people's generosity. So we got to see family. We spent time on the lake. We went to Disney. And Gray bought one of everything at Disney because he had $800 saved up. (laughs) We stayed in a house on the beach that a friend let us use for free. Everything was just like, it was just perfect. And I was having a mini mental breakdown. And I'm talking to my counselor, Harv. We talked a lot this summer. And I'm like, Harv, I'm two months into my sabbatical. And I don't have a takeaway. When I get back from my sabbatical, everybody's going to ask about my takeaway. I don't have one. Harv, this can't just be a nice vacation. Like a sabbatical is an investment in my growth. It's, it's so that I can learn something here that I couldn't learn while I was at work. But Harv, I haven't learned everything, anything. My sabbatical, it cannot just be a nice vacation. And that's it. And here I am on a beautiful beach, family that I love. In this house, somebody's letting us use for free. And I'm having a breakdown Because I think like a lot of men, I don't know what to do without being productive. I felt stuck. And I would probably assume that there are hundreds, if not thousands of people in this church that if you look at them, it seems like everything's going great. Internally though, you wouldn't know it, but they feel stuck. They're either stuck in a decision that they're trying to make. They're stuck in this pattern of behavior that they just can't get out of. They're stuck because the things that they said were their priorities, they actually aren't the things that they prioritize. They feel stuck. I mean, you might be selling a company. On the outside to everybody else, it looks like things are just going great, but you've got this nagging feeling. You're like, what's next? Everything you've done from here on in your life has been to build this company, and you're hitting what you call a purpose crisis. Or maybe you have this big vision for your future. Like you feel like this is what I want to do. I think this might even be what God's created me to do. And at the same time, you have no idea where to start or how to make it happen. And right now you're stuck in fear. Or maybe you're just in a job that you hate, a relationship. It's it's going nowhere. You both know that. You just wait till the weekend so that you can numb out on drugs or drinking or shopping or sex or whatever. And you're stuck. Or maybe you're just, you're in a job and your job's fine. Your marriage is fine, and parenting is fine, hobbies are fine, everything's just fine. But you want more, but you feel stuck. And when you were thinking about what life was going to look like now, this is not what you expected. So today, we're going to look at a couple in the Bible who feel the exact same way, We're going to be in Luke chapter one. If you want to turn there in your Bibles and at all of our campuses, we got free Bibles available in the back. You see, Luke is one of four different gospel accounts. This is where four different authors, they write about what happened with Jesus. And what's important to know is that Luke is written after two of the other gospel accounts. What I want to do for just one minute, I want to help you understand the timing of the gospels so that you can better handle the word of God when you're reading it. So the first gospel that was written, the first one written was written by Mark. So before Mark was written, people would just tell each other the stories about Jesus and they talk about him because they were all alive when it happened. They're all like firsthand eyewitnesses to what happened. They all have that experience. But as people get older, Mark realized like, I've got to write something down because if I don't write something down, there's going to be nothing to pass on to the next generation. And so Mark writes the first gospel. The second gospel written is Matthew. 
He saw what Mark wrote, but he said, I, I want to highlight the teaching of Jesus more than Mark did. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, that's where you find the Sermon on the Mount. That's where you find a bunch of different teachings of Jesus because Matthew wanted to focus on Jesus' teaching. And then third was Luke. And Luke, he wanted to find more of the details. And so he starts doing research. He makes trips to different places. He goes to Jesus' hometown. He talks to eyewitnesses. And he puts together what he would call an orderly account. And then last was John. And John lived decades longer than all the other disciples. He watches this world that in just 20 years, it drastically changes. And so he writes this gospel for a new generation. And it highlights some of the different parts of Jesus's ministry that need to be remembered in a world that changed. And here's why all of that's important for us today. Luke expects that we know the end of the story as he writes his gospel. Okay, from the beginning, he expects us to know Jesus is born to Virgin Mary. He expects us to know that Jesus spent his time walking around with 12 disciples. He expects us to know that Jesus died on a cross and on the third day he rose again. And then he expects us to know about John the Baptist, the man that today's scripture is going to talk about. You see, he expects us to know a couple things. He expects us to know that when John gets older, John's going to be the one that baptizes Jesus. He's going to be the one that Jesus says about John, hey, this is the greatest man born of woman. That John's going to look back at Jesus and he's going to say, hey, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. And that ultimately John's going to give his life because he preached the truth to a culture that didn't want to hear it. You see, Luke expects us to know all of this. And so as Luke is writing the details of the account, he's not necessarily sharing the details so that the story moves along better. He's sharing these details because they're supposed to mean something. You see, in the book of Luke, the details, they're a message. And it's less about where we're getting to, and it's more about how we get there. It's like if you watch a movie that's based on something that happened in history, like you know how it ends. You know how the story of Braveheart ends. You know that William Wallace dies in the end, but the movie's all about what leads up to it. And so as we read the book of Luke, as we read the story, let's pay attention to the details. We'll start in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In Luke chapter one, verse five, it starts like this. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there's a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. That's another priest. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. So she's from a priestly family as well. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But this is important but they had no child. Elizabeth was barren. Both were advanced in years. So I want you to think about this couple. These are good religious people, okay? These people, they go to church, they serve, they're in a group, they give, they listen to worship music, they go to Chick-fil-A, okay? They're doing all the right, you got that. They're doing all the right things, everything that God told them to do. And at the same time, they don't have the one thing that they've been asking God for for 30, 40, maybe 50 years. This is not what they expected. You know, I bet they thought that what we think, they think like, okay, if I, if I follow God, if I do the right things, if, I, if I'm a good person, then I'm gonna be in the job that I want. I'm gonna get the big house, the nice car, the perfect family. God, if I follow you, then my plan for my life, it'll all work out. But instead, 
Every time Elizabeth sees another mother with kids, all she can think about are prayers that haven't been answered. Going like, if there was a God, why wouldn't he fix this? And for Zechariah, some of his contemporaries, they actually believe that not having kids was actually a direct message from God. That when people don't have the blessing of kids, that's kind of like God's way of telling them that you're cut off from him. I mean, we know that's not true, but that's what people believe. And so every day Zechariah goes to work, there are people that look at him. They go, God's given up on that guy. Verse 8 we see Zechariah at work. It says, now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was, and this is important, we'll talk about it in a bit, chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, this is important because he's been chosen by Lot. Zechariah is in the temple where he meets the angel literally because of the roll of a dice. Okay, they, they just roll dice and whoever it lands on is the person that goes into the temple to burn the incense. So the only reason that Zechariah is in here, it seems to be by chance. But we actually find that there's a divine appointment on the other side of the roll of the dice. So we continue in verse 12. It says, in Zechariah, he was troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. He's gonna come before the Lord Jesus. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He'll turn, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's an Old Testament prophet. To turn the hearts of fathers to the children. And we're so passionate about that as a church. When husbands and fathers provide and protect. He's going to say he's going to do that with fathers and their children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and he's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they start out in a place where they feel stuck. They're waiting for this miracle that's never happened. And when they're old, when it feels impossible, God sends an angel to tell them, hey, my plans for your future are very different than what you thought was possible. I mean, can you imagine if Zechariah and Elizabeth, they just decided, you know what? Like, I don't think the kid thing's happening. Like, we should just get a dog instead. Okay, or maybe we really stick it to God, we get a cat, you know? Like one of those furry demons. We know he doesn't like cats and got some cat people in the audience. So man, okay, all right. What would have happened if they would have just moved on? You see, right now, some of you guys, you feel stuck and you're just waiting on God. And he seems to be taking his sweet time. You're getting to this point where you're getting ready to move on. And in those moments, you'll be tempted to believe some lies. But we need to hold on to some of the truths that we find in Scripture. And the truths go like this. It is not too late. This is not wasted time. And you are not here by chance. 
Let's see how this plays out in our story. It's not too late. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they'd long given up on having children, okay? They're thinking like, we're too old. It's too late for us. But we know anytime you read scripture, it is not too late for God. And some of us, we think that it's too late for us. And so we've just given up. You've given up on having a great marriage. Just given up. I want to tell you, it is not too late. Don't give up. You've given up on setting a good example for your kids. It's not too late. You've like searched and searched and searched for the good single guy. This guy that follows Jesus, but you haven't found anybody. You're assuming it's just getting too late and you probably should just settle. It is not too late. Or you think it's too late to follow that dream that God's been putting on your heart over and over and over. It is not too late. You think a 1-5 star is too late for the Broncos. <laughs> if the Broncos have taught us anything this year, it is not too late for them to lose in the wild card, probably. Okay, I've got like a reasonable amount of faith there. That's about all I've got. You see, the scriptures, they remind us over and over, with God, it is never too late. Don't give up. The second thing we've got to remember when we're waiting this is not wasted time. You see, God's not wasting the time that you're waiting. Here's how I, I think that this worked out with Zechariah and Elizabeth. All Jewish mothers during this time, they like hoped and prayed that they would be the mother of the Messiah. And if you think about the events that surround Zechariah and Elizabeth, it kind of calls back to these different miraculous births of important people all throughout the Old Testament. It reminds you of like Abraham and Sarah, who were the parents of the nation of Israel. It reminds you of the parents of Samuel, who was a prophet. It reminds you of the parents of Samson, who was the deliverer of the people. And then you take these two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're both from the priestly family. And so it seems like these circumstances, they're like the perfect miraculous setup for Elizabeth to be the mother of the Messiah. But instead of being the mother of the Messiah, she'd be the mother of the one who paved the way for the Messiah. You see, her son would be the groomsman, but he wouldn't be the groom. He would, he would say, Jesus must become greater. I must become less. And here's what I, I think is happening in the years and the years of unanswered prayers and waiting. I think that God is shaping something in their hearts, shaping something that allows Elizabeth to take a backseat to Mary. And that allows, that kind of teaches their son, John, to take a backseat to Jesus. Their waiting prepared them to train up their son to be the world's greatest opening act. And then he was going to willingly hand over his influence to Jesus at just the right time. You see, God used this season of waiting as a season of preparation. God didn't waste the season that they're waiting. So do not believe the lie. This is not wasted time. Then the third thing that we must remember, you are not here by chance. Zechariah was in the temple because of the roll of a dice, but God had a purpose behind it. In the places in your life where you just feel like you're here by chance, you're like, I don't know why I'm in this job. It's just the only thing that was available at the time. Or like, I don't know why I'm in this class. I didn't know what major to choose. And so I'm just taking gen eds and that's why I'm in this class. Guys, your job, your marriage, your friendship, the kids you have, the school you're at, 
all of it, you might think that you're here by chance, but God has placed you here for a purpose. And as empty as it might feel, as at times meaningless as it might feel, even at times as dark as it might feel. And I talked to some people who were in the middle of the dark last night, after last night's services. Wherever you find yourself, God is using where you are now to set you up for what he wants to do next. You see, Joseph had to go to the prison before he was ready for the palace, right? Israel, they had to go through the desert before they could be ready for the promised land. David had to be in a cave before he could be on the throne. Peter had to sink before he could walk on water. Paul, he had to be blinded before he could help others see. And there had to be a cross before there could be an empty tomb. And I'm telling you, the same is true for all of us. Wherever we find ourselves, God is using where you are now for what he wants to do next. Guys, I'm telling you, I experienced that this summer. I was talking with Harv. seeing Harv this sabbatical... It can't just be a nice vacation. It's supposed to be an investment in my growth. It's supposed to be so I can come back stronger, but I don't have a takeaway, Harv, and I've only got a few weeks left. And Harv said in his therapist voice, which is so calm and soothing, I don't know, I think they're born with that. He says, Jess, what if instead of an investment, what if it's just a gift, a gift because you're loved and you're valued? I said, Harv, I don't think that's it. I think you're wrong. You're not supposed to tell your therapist that they're wrong, but uh, I disagreed with him. And then I, I started uh, breaking down. Because deep down, um, I didn't feel worthy to get a gift like that. You see, through my sabbatical, we discovered that deep down I had this sense of unworthiness that had been growing undetected for years. And like a lot of us, I could keep it hidden, you know, like anytime I felt unworthy, I could just work harder, you know, and then through that performance, I'd start to feel a little bit better about myself. And then like the recognition, the affirmation I'd get from other people, it would help me convince myself that I, I wasn't as unworthy as I felt because I was totally unaware of it. Two months without being able to perform for value, two months without affirmation or recognition, and I was starting to feel what was deep down inside me, it was starting to bubble up. One time I was on the middle of this hike, I'm all by myself, I passed this family, and then they turned around and they said, wait, are you Jesse from Flatirons? We love Flatirons. And I was like, oh my gosh, this feels so good right now. It feels so good to be recognized. I'm embarrassed of how good it felt to be recognized after not being recognized for two months. And then I'm hiking with my boys, and I'm just, took them backpacking, and I'm loving being their dad, I'm loving that they're my boys. And I have this moment where I just realize if an imperfect father feels this way about his sons, how much more does a perfect heavenly father feel about me? Because God has recognized me as his son long before I helped lead a church or stand on a stage. And that fundamentally changed how I think about myself. You see, back from sabbatical, I now know in the deepest place, my, perform, my performance, my affirmation, that doesn't decide my worth. My worth comes from the love of a father. And just like all of you guys, like, I knew that. I knew that. But I didn't know that. And the most important, the most loving thing that a loving God could do for me was to strip everything else away so that I could know how much he loves me. And similarly, I don't know your circumstances. 
But I do want to tell you, God has you exactly where you are, whatever the circumstances, whatever the circumstances for a reason. And he is using this time to set up for something that's going to happen next. You see, here's what we see all throughout scripture. If God has a plan for you, which he does, if he has a plan for you, then the only thing that can get in the way of it, it's not other people, it's not your circumstances, it's not powers or principalities or demons, it's not any of those things, okay? The only thing stopping God from doing what he wants to do in and through you is your willingness to participate. Look at how this works in the life of Zechariah. We'll skip down to verse 18. It says, in Zechariah, he says to the angel, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife, she's advanced in years. This isn't happening. The angel answered him, said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent, unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. He says, they're going to happen. Because Zechariah doesn't believe what the angel's telling him, he loses his voice. Why does that happen? Let's skip down to verse 57 and finish the story. He said, now the time for Elizabeth came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Then they, they didn't understand. They said to her, hey, none of your relatives are called by this name. So they made signs to the father, asking the father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And so Zechariah asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wonder. And immediately his mouth was open, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Now again, I want us to remember what Luke is doing here in the scripture. Every detail of this story matters. He's trying to help us key in on the details. So you've got this couple who feels like the opportunities have passed them by. The prayers that they've prayed, the dreams they've dreamt, they, they haven't happened. And so they're just going through the motions. They're feeling stuck. And yet God's reminding them, it is not too late. This is not wasted time. You're not here by chance. And in the middle of these three truths that we need to remember, there are three steps we need to take. They're all here in that second part of the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they're the three things that you need to get unstuck. And they go like this. Faith, obedience, and courage. See, faith with Zechariah, his first response is not to have faith. It isn't to believe God. It's a question, how shall I know this? Will this really happen? His first reaction, it's not faith, it's actually doubt. And I just gotta ask, can you blame him? I mean... He's been doing all the right things. He's been born into the right family. He's prayed all the prayers. And year after year, all he's gotten back in his direction is just no. So it's no surprise to me that his first reaction, even though he's seeing an angel, he's talking to an angel, but his first reaction is, really? 
And so the angel takes his voice away. And some of us today, we have a similar posture. You see, we've got our list of unanswered prayers. We've got our list of unaddressed hurts. We've got these questions that we don't have answers to, and we are stuck in our doubts. I tell you, I've got so much empathy for people who are stuck in doubt. I I do, because as somebody who went through a multi-year struggle with doubt, I, I remember how dark and disorienting and at times like hopeless that it felt. And I just remember like wrestling with my doubt. But I'll tell you, wrestling with my doubt actually resulted in the strengthening of my faith. But I'm actually concerned with what I'm seeing in our culture today. Because similarly, just as they always have had people today, they have doubts, but instead of actively wrestling with them, they're just passively sitting in them. Instead of like researching both sides of the doubt, instead of doing their investigation, doing the research, instead of reading about what Jesus actually said rather than what they've been told, instead of all that, people today, they, they don't think about it, they don't research it, they don't wrestle with it, they just try to ignore it and they just sit in their doubt. But without the work and without the wrestling, it never can lead to a stronger faith on the other side. And the story of Zechariah, I think, is a warning for all of us. You see, the longer we sit passively in doubt, the more we lose our voice. The more we lose our ability to talk about the things that really matter, to bring hope and joy and light into the world. You see, God gave you the voice that you have for a reason. God gave you the gifts that you have for a reason. He gave you those gifts and that voice. He gave them to you for the benefit of others. And so if you're restricting your voice, if you're restricting your influence, you're actually robbing other people what God designed for them to have, but he designed for them to get it through you. You see, your doubt is not something to just be solved but it's also not something to just sit in. Our doubt might be robbing the world of our voice. So the first step to take is a step of faith where we say, God, with all my questions, with all my doubts, I am just gonna lean in and I'm going to start with faith to say, I believe that you are who you say that you are. I believe that your intentions toward me are good and I believe that you're gonna do everything you promised to do. God, it's not perfect faith, but it's this believing loyalty. I don't have all the answers, but with all the information I have and with all my questions, God, I'll follow you. You see, when, it's, when you feel like it's too late for you, it is not too late to take a step of faith. It's not too late. That leads us to the next step. It's a step of obedience. Now, here's the thing. I'm not sure why God tells Zachariah to name his son John. But I want to say, it's actually less about understanding why God asked that, and it's more about Zachariah's response. Because here's what we think. We think that understanding comes before obedience. But I want you to look at this scripture right here. This is in Proverbs chapter 3. It said, for the Lord detests the perverse. These are people that do the opposite of what God says is right to embrace. They do the opposite. He detests people who do the opposite, but he takes the upright people into his confidence. You see, obedience is way more than just a response to what God has done for us or to what he tells us to do. Obedience is actually the gateway to understanding. 
See, Proverbs is telling us that the more that you obey, the more that you're an upright person, the more that God brings you into his plans. He brings you into his ideas. He brings you into what he's doing. And so if you want to understand God more, the first step, it's obedience. And then God promises that through obedience comes understanding. You know, we think it's the other way around. We think God, like, God, you explain yourself and then I'll decide if I'm gonna obey you or not. God, once I understand, then I'll obey. But God says it's actually the opposite. That the people who are gonna understand me the most are the people who obey before they understand. And in our world, we don't have a knowledge problem. We have an obedience problem. I mean, we know what the Bible says about generosity. We know what the Bible says about sexuality. We know what the Bible says about how we talk about other people. The real question is, are we obeying what we already know? You see, you might feel like this season that you're in, it's a waste of time, but God's wanting to prepare something in you during the season. And this is not wasted time if you practice obedience. If you just keep showing up. If you keep going, even when you're not seeing results, even when things aren't changing, even when you're not getting the things that you want to get and there's no change, because you think about it with Zachariah and Elizabeth, if at any point they just say like, nope, I quit, I'm out. The plan falls apart. So flat irons, keep showing up because God's going to use this season of obedience to prepare you for what he wants to do in your life next. Then from the decision to be obedient, there's one final step and it's a step of courage. Will you have the courage to hold on to God's word when culture tells you to let go of it? You see, when the people in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, when they heard that the child was going to be named John, they didn't accept it. They didn't understand it. They didn't agree with it. Nobody understood or agreed with the fact that they would call this kid John. And when you take a step of faith and when you take a step of obedience, you need to prepare yourself that it may not be a popular decision. Maybe you just got baptized a couple weeks ago with the other 800 some people, but your family back home doesn't know when you're heading back for Christmas. Be prepared to answer some questions. Maybe you feel like God's calling you to go into ministry. Be prepared for your parents to try to talk you out of it. Maybe you feel like God's telling you to break off that relationship. Be prepared for people to not understand it. And remember what Paul writes in Galatians chapter one, verse 10. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Because if I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, you may not like the circumstances you're in. You may not understand why you're here. I talked to plenty of people like that last night, but we have to have confidence to know that God has placed us here for a reason. And so let me just remind you, you are not here by chance. So take courage, hold on. I wanna close with a question. What if the reason that you are where you are has nothing to do with you and everything to do with somebody that you'll introduce to Jesus? Okay, what if just like John the Baptist, you're not there to save anybody, but instead you're just there to pave the way for them to meet the Messiah. This week I was talking with a friend of mine and he was talking about this time where he was just at the lowest in his life. His business was bankrupt. He was broke. 
He was addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol. His wife's getting ready to leave. And so he calls this guy that he knows to get some business advice. He's just thinking like, if I can get my business good, then everything else is going to be all right. So they meet at a Starbucks and they're just talking about business. And in the middle of this hour long conversation, this guy just randomly says, Hey, Jake, you know, Jesus loves you, right? And Jake didn't grow up in church. And Jake's just like, what? He's like, you know, Jesus loves you, right? Jake's like, uh, I guess. And then they just move on with the conversation. But after the coffee, Jake's pretty shook. He's in his car. He calls his wife. He's like, hey, um, <clears throat> I was meeting about my business, but this guy in the middle of it, he told me that, that Jesus loves me. And I, I don't know. Um, I'm thinking maybe we just go to church this Sunday. What do you think? And his wife says, I've been waiting for you to say that. Now, the guy in the coffee shop, Jake hasn't actually seen that guy since. But Jake and his family have been going to Flatirons now for 13 years. So let me ask you, random meeting at a coffee shop or is it a divine appointment? Okay, one coffee and everything changes. Flatirons, Christmas is coming up and God has placed you where you're at for a reason. Because there is somebody in your life they need to hear. God's not angry with them. He hasn't given up on them. That God actually loves them so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for them. And this Christmas, you've got an opportunity to make an invite that could change everything. And so we're going to spend some time as we close today's service taking communion together. And it's this thing where we as followers of Jesus, we take a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. And we remember what Jesus has done for us. And today, in this moment of remembrance, I want you to just, while you've got that cup in your hands, I want you to think about the first time that you heard about the love of Jesus. Maybe you were a kid. Maybe you were a teenager. Maybe you were 85. And you heard that God had not given up on you. And I want you to think about what that feels like. And as we take the cup, as we eat the bread, as we drink the juice, we're going to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. That 2,000 years ago in history, he came down to say, you won't wait any longer. I am the fulfillment to everything that you're praying for. Then at all of our campuses, when you're ready in the next song, you've been able to take communion. We invite you to stand and sing with us when you're ready. But let's pray. God... Right now, we are going to take this bread and we're going to take this juice. And we're going to remember what you've done for us. Got it. 2,000 years ago, on a day in history, you sent your son Jesus who would die on our behalf so that we could be reconnected to you. God, while we were waiting, when we needed you the most, God, you sent your son Jesus and he showed up. And God, for those of us in our life where right now we feel stuck and we're just waiting and we're waiting on that prayer that just hasn't been answered. God, as we take this communion, God, we remember that you are the God that shows up when we need you. God, you are the God that's here when we need you the most because that's what you did for us on a day in history. And God, right now, I'm actually asking that you would bring to mind somebody in our life that doesn't know you. And God, right now, they're stuck and they're waiting. What we don't really know 
is maybe they're waiting on us. God, help us remember how good your son Jesus is in this moment. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and we worship. Amen.